Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. It is Mardi Gras season right now, so New Orleans has been in the news a couple of times this week, and seeing that made me remember the one time that I was in New Orleans. I promise it was not for Mardi Gras, okay? Uh, It was after Hurricane Katrina, and like many thousands of people around our country, I went to be a part of uh, a team that was helping with the recovery down there. And the most sobering thing that I did down there was to actually drive through the Ninth Ward. If you remember, the Ninth Ward was the neighborhood that was hit the hardest. Uh, A levee broke and that neighborhood was flooded completely and basically wiped out. So driving through there was like being on the scene of a zombie apocalypse. It was just abandoned buildings and wreckage and not a soul to be seen. The saddest thing about that experience was realizing that almost everyone who lived in the Ninth Ward was African-American and poor. Now, that was not just a, a random fact. It wasn't just that it happened to be where the hurricane hit the hardest. That was a product of design. See, earlier in New Orleans history, they, the banks and government agencies actually prioritized white families to make sure they got the safest place, the highest ground, so that their neighborhoods were the safest in times of storm. And they relegated black families to the, the lower elevation areas, which meant they were always more vulnerable. I think that is a perfect example and a perfect metaphor for injustice. Because here's the thing, every single person in life suffers. We all get hit by storms. None of us are exempt from that. But the question that God's people need to be asking are this, why is it there are some people who are living in the path of the storm more frequently than others? Because it is not random that there are certain groups of people that tend to suffer more than other groups of people. It is not random chance, it is injustice that causes that. And as God's people, we are called to stand in humble solidarity with those groups who suffer injustice more frequently. This is the last week in a series we've been doing on three of the prophetic books in the Old Testament, and today we're in the book of Micah. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Micah, chapter 6. I would tell you how to find it, but let's be honest, the table of contents is going to be a lot faster, so uh, do it that way. Uh, The main context you need to know for the passage is this. This book is about a generation after the book of Amos. So if you remember a couple of weeks ago, Jim was out here uh, preaching a great message on Amos. And do you remember what the main theme of that book was? If you know it, shout it out. Justice, social justice. And so Amos was blasting the people of Israel saying, you are ignoring issues of justice in your midst. And if something doesn't change, there are going to be consequences. Well, a generation later, God sends the prophet Micah to the exact same group of people. And how do you think they're doing? Even worse than before. And so now the consequences are on the horizon. The Assyrian army is on the border about to invade and they're going to be taken away. And so before that happens, God is going to put his people on trial. And this is what happens in Micah chapter 6. So let's read this together. Starts with the voice of God. Says, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. And then this is the voice of the prophet. Hear hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. And then God speaks again. 
my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And then Israel responds, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Then the prophet responds, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're going to ask three questions from this passage. And here is the first one. What does a prophet do? What does a prophet do? This is one of the massive mistakes that almost everybody makes when they read the biblical prophets. They have the wrong job description for a prophet. Most people assume that a prophet's job is to tell the future. That, that's what it means to be a prophet, right? Like you've read the end of the book and now you're going to tell the, the, the story to everybody. You know, you've got spoiler alert written across your chest because your job is to tell people what is going to happen. Now, this may surprise you, but that is actually not what a prophet does. In the Bible, a prophet's job is not to make predictions about the future. A prophet's job is to give perspective on the present. Their job is to give perspective on the present. Uh, we live in a world that is just full of spin, right? Everybody with a Twitter account is trying to get you to see their side of the story and believe their account of events. And everybody's trying to talk about the way things ought to be seen, and what a prophet does is this. He comes on the scene with a definitive, thus says the Lord, and says, let me give you God's perspective on this, which is the true perspective. It's a, a way almost of turning on the director's commentary for life to say, what is the one who's running the show? Think about all of this. What, what are they doing? What's their perspective on this? And you get the true interpretation of events. Now, sometimes prophets in the midst of giving perspective on the present do make predictions about the future, but it's always related to what's happening here and now. So they'll make predictions like this. Because you are behaving like this sinfully, God is going to do this next. Or, or they'll say, you are in this desperate, hard situation, but don't lose hope because here is what's coming just around the bend. But it's always related to what the current situation is. And that's the reason why the prophets don't answer all the questions we wish they would. And they don't just give a clear timeline of here's how it's all going to go down, because that's not the point. Their goal is not to change your knowledge about the future, but to change your action in the present. Here's another way to think about what a prophet is. A prophet is not a fortune teller. A prophet is a lawyer. Specifically, a prophet is God's prosecuting attorney. Look at what it says in verse 2. It says, let me turn there. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. This is a, a courtroom scene that you're supposed to depict here. Every time a prophet shows up, they're bringing a charge against God's people. And it's always for the same reason. It's because the people have done something to breach their agreement with God. The formal agreement that God's people have with God is called the covenant. 
A way to think about a covenant is it's sort of a cross between adoption and a business partnership. So the the covenant is sort of like adoption. So when God brought the people up out of Egypt, he said to them, he said, all right, I will be your God and you will be my people. It was almost like saying, I'm gonna be your father. You're gonna be my children. We are a family now. And so it brought the people into God's family. But it was more than just rescuing them to bring them into a family. It was a business agreement as well. So when God brought the people up out of Egypt, he he was taking them out of a terribly unjust situation. And Egypt represented everything that was wrong with sinful society. They they had a tyrant ruler. They had a corrupt religion that was propping up that ruler. They, They were crushing the weakest people in their society. They were enslaving other ethnic groups. They were murdering babies. They were doing it all to maintain their economic and their military might in the world. And so God looked at that and said, I cannot have that in my world. And so God called the people out of Egypt to be the anti-Egypt. He set up the social structures of Israel to actually be the opposite of what was going on there. God was partnering with Israel in this big grand project to restore a broken world. And so Israel was supposed to be a picture of what the world could look like if it was full of justice and peace and the presence of God. They were supposed to be the pilot project for the new creation. And so whenever Israel started acting like the Egypts and the Babylons and the Assyrias of the world, a prophet would show up as God's lawyer and say, you are violating the terms of the covenant. You've got to come back to the promises, the commitments you made, or there will be consequences. In in this case, Micah's saying the consequences are here. The Assyrians are about to invade as your punishment. And so finally, the people are asking the question, and this is the second point, What does God actually want? What does God actually want? And God gives a very direct answer in verse eight. It says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's unpack those three things that God says. First thing that God wants is he wants us to have justice. He wants us to have justice. Now, Pastor Jim, like I said before, preached a sermon on Amos two weeks ago where he talked a lot about social justice. So I'm not gonna repeat a lot of the things that he said there. If you have not heard that sermon, I'd encourage you to go back and check it out. But instead, what I'm gonna do is actually, uh, I'm gonna play a video. Uh, This is a video that gives a great visual of the concept of justice. It's really helpful. It was made by a group called The Bible Project. And if you have never encountered something by The Bible Project, I would encourage you this week, go and do yourself a favor and just watch every video they've ever made. It's amazing. Um, They are head and shoulders my favorite resource for studying the Bible. Um, And sometimes I get angry when I'm watching it because I'm like, these are so good. Why do I even have a job? Come on. So that's what I'm going to do. Instead of preaching this point, I'm going to have us watch a video about justice. (laughs) If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but 
we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use, but what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like, here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. Now, that's just the, the first three minutes of that video. I'd encourage you to go back, the, back and watch the rest of those sometime later. But this idea of a just society, it's really appealing, isn't it? Like who wouldn't want to live in a world where everyone is valued as someone made in the image of God? It sounds wonderful, that would be great. But in the real world, this is very hard to pull off. And Micah, earlier in the book, he actually identifies why this is. This is what it says in chapter two, verse one. He says, woe to those who plan iniquity, those who plot evil on their beds, at morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. Okay, so let's be real here. We are all people with sinful hearts. And so all of us do the first half of that verse. We plan iniquity. We have selfish desires. We are on the lookout for things that would be to our advantage, even if they would disadvantage other people, even if they'd be unfair. But the reason we don't carry out those plans, most of the time it isn't because we're just a little bit better, you know? It's because we just don't have the ability to do it. We don't have what the second half of the verse says. We don't have the power to get away with those actions. So if you think about injustice, it's sort of like that little science experiment that you might have done in elementary school where you made a volcano. You know, there's two ingredients to that. You gotta have vinegar and baking soda and you gotta bring them together. Well, every one of us has the vinegar. We've got a sinful, selfish heart. And by itself, it stinks, it smells bad, but it doesn't make a whole lot of mess. But when you add the baking soda of power to the vinegar of a selfish heart, you've got injustice and it gets everywhere. This is the problem. Uh, when people have power, 
It is not that people with less power are are less sinful, have less uh, corrupt motives, but when you have the ability to get away with it, that is when it's easier to commit injustice. This is why the definition of justice says, treat everyone equally, but when the Bible actually talks about which groups of people most need justice, it relentlessly, uh, just consistently focuses on the same groups. Those groups are this, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the poor, and people with disabilities. So the Bible mentions caring for orphans 45 to 50 times, for widows over 100 times, for the poor 150 times, for foreigners and immigrants over 200 times. Jesus in his ministry emphasized serving people who are blind or paralyzed, deaf, uh, people who are uh, lepers, people who had other physical ailments. Why did, does the Bible focus on these groups as recipients of justice? Because in every society, including our own, throughout all of history, these groups have been on the lower end of the power spectrum. This means that even if they have sinful desires to take advantage of someone else, they have less opportunity to do it because they have less power. And on the flip side, the other members of society around them have more power over them to carry out injustice against them. And so this is the reason why God calls himself the father to the fatherless, the defender of the widows. It's the reason scripture says that if we dishonor the poor, we dishonor God. Doing justice does not simply mean treating everybody fairly. Doing justice according to the Bible means giving extra attention to those groups that have less overall privilege and power in society. That's what it means for us to do justice. Look back at verse eight. God wants a second thing from us. He wants us to love mercy. All right, you guys want to learn a little bit Hebrew today? Can I teach you a Hebrew word? Okay, very important Hebrew word that uh, in this verse, uh, that mercy, uh, the, the Hebrew word behind that word mercy, it's a tricky word because there is no exact English equivalent. There's no, you can't just pick one word for it. Uh, that word is chesed. Say that with me, chesed. Okay, you kind of have to clear your throat when you do the H sound, okay? Um, I'm not going to do that this time or my throat's going to get raspy. But um, chesed, it sometimes is translated love, okay, a lot of times, but this would be weird if it just said love, love. Sometimes it's translated mercy or kindness, uh, sometimes faithfulness, but none of those really get at it, okay? The word hesed means loyal covenant love, loyal covenant love. Uh, remember how I said before, the covenant is kind of a combination of an adoption and a, a business deal? Well, hesed is sort of the cross between the affection that you feel for your family and the loyalty that you owe to the co-owner of your business. That hesed is both a feeling and an obligation. Uh, hesed is sort of like a marriage vow, okay? Why do I keep my vow to love and cherish Michelle? Is it because I want to or because I have to? Yes, both of those, okay? That's what hesed is. Another way to think of it is this. Hesed is three musketeers love. It makes you say, All for one and one for all. We are in this together. Your problems are my problems. Your mission is my mission. We're together. So this is what I'm calling the second thing that God wants from us. He wants solidarity, solidarity. And here's how this relates to doing justice. If God's covenant makes us a family, that means that you are my brother or sister. And I'm not gonna look at my brother and sister and say, you know what, your problem is your own problem. I'm gonna say, whatever power influence I have, I'm gonna use to help solve your problem. And in the same way, if we become partners with God in the covenant, we become business partners with him, then his business is our business. So if he's in the business of restoring a broken world, so am I. And I'm not going to look at a situation in the world and say, not my problem. 
Because God doesn't look at situations in the world and say, not my problem. If God's in solidarity with hurting people, then I'm in solidarity with hurting people. Now, the hardest thing about developing hesed, this sense of solidarity, is that it gets really overwhelming. There's a lot of injustice, a lot of pain in the world. So where do you start? I'm going to encourage you to start in in two ways, just right in your own life. Now, these are not things that are going to uh, change global poverty or injustice, but it's going to form your heart. First thing is this. Start noticing the differences in power between people within your world. If you start doing this, you'll notice obvious differences. Some people have official power. A boss has more power than an employee. A parent has more power than a child. A teacher has more power than a student. But then you'll start to notice subtler forms of power, those those forms of social power between different types of people. So look around and ask, are there some people who feel more free to express their thoughts and opinions than other people? Are there some people who tend to get their way more often than others? Are there some people whose ideas get taken really seriously and other people who consistently get written off and other people who never even have a chance to share their ideas? In a conversation, who can interrupt whom and get away with it? Whose lifestyle and culture gets to be seen as normal and which person seems different and outside? Who do people pay attention to for their social cues and who is functionally invisible? Who gets accused of bad behavior more often and whose bad behavior gets excused more often? Who gets nitpicked for small things? When you start paying attention to these things, you'll notice the differences in power between people. Now, an imbalance in power does not automatically mean injustice. Uh, Differences in power are morally neutral and oftentimes they're used for good. The the power that a parent has is very good for a child that they love. But remember, the more power you have, the more easy it is for you to get away with selfish things. The less power you have, the harder it is to avoid being taken advantage of by those with more power. So, when you notice that someone has less power, put yourself in their shoes and ask the question, how does the situation feel for them? Notice when, the, because of their less power, it makes the situation more difficult for them or less fair for them or more embarrassing for them. And just notice, just empathize. My guess is if you pay attention for a while, you will start to notice that certain types of people tend to have power, less power more often. In most situations, Women have less power than men. In most situations, people of color have less power than white people. In most situations, poor people, people with physical or mental illnesses, elderly people, all tend to have less power. Now, at this point, again, I'm just asking you to be mindful of this. It becomes just a spiritual discipline of focusing your attention and having compassion. And when you start noticing that in your personal world, you'll also start to become sensitive to it in the larger world of of big, uh, large-scale injustices. Here's the second step. The second step is within your sphere of influence, when you notice someone having less power being taken advantage of, make their problem your problem and use whatever power you have on their behalf. So if you have a female coworker who consistently gets cut off in conversation by male coworkers, Make sure you circle back and say, hey, I think we missed one of your thoughts. I'd love to hear what you have to say. If you have an elderly relative, be checking in, paying attention that there aren't people trying to take advantage of them. If you have another student in your school and you realize 
They kind of let you in on the fact that they're in a tough situation, maybe an abusive situation, but they are afraid that no one's going to believe them. Go with them to the social worker or to the police officer in your school. Lend your power to them. Uh, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, he wrote an excellent book called Generous Justice. If you're going to read just one book on justice, this would be a great one to choose. And in his book, he gives an example of a man who owned a chain of car dealerships. And the CEO of this uh, chain, he did some research, and he found out that in general, when negotiating a price for a car, men tend to be more persistent than women in haggling. And white customers tend to be more persistent than African-Americans. In large part, this is because of the social power that whites and males experience in our society. Other groups are conditioned to give in a little bit more quickly. And so this meant in practice that, the, that haggling for a price of a car put black women in particular at a disadvantage. Even though they were often the poorest customers at his car dealerships, they ended up paying more than more privileged customers. So even though the policy of haggling for a car is obviously not illegal and certainly not immoral, he decided, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go to a list price is what you pay kind of system. We're not going to have haggling. Why? Because as a car dealer, he thought, you know what? I have some power here. And even though it may cost me some, their problem is going to be my problem. And I'm going to do what I can about it. God wants us to practice solidarity. Look back at verse 8. There's a third item in the list. It says we should walk humbly with our God. Walk humbly with God. God wants justice, solidarity, but he also wants humility. Humility. Here's what it means to be humble. It means living life with God, not trying to live life as God. This is especially relevant when we are thinking about justice issues. Because many of us, when we start to talk about justice, we speak in ways as if we were God. Think about how God can talk about things. He can speak with perfect understanding of the situation. He can speak with absolute certainty. He can speak with authority and he can declare the verdict of whose opinion is right and whose opinion is wrong and all must keep silent before him because he is the judge. And that works if you're God. But I hate to break it to you. You are not God. You're not God. You don't know it all. You're not always right. And it is not your job to fix everyone's bad ideas. You are not God. I wish I could post that sentence above every online comment box. You know, you are not God. What does it look like to be humble when you're talking about justice issues, whether on social media or in the lunchroom or at a family party? Let let me make a few suggestions. The first is this. Humility acknowledges complexity. At my favorite uh, burger place, they have a burger called the Hangover Helper. It's basically breakfast on a bun, um, and it's got a, a, a beef patty, then it's got a sausage patty, and then there are two hash browns, then there is a fried egg, and it's all covered in syrup. Uh, my wife loves this burger. I'm not a fan, okay? But <laughs> you look at it and you think, okay, this is a hamburger. Like, it's pretty simple. You know what to do with a burger. You take a bite, you chew, you swallow, repeat until finished, okay? But then you pick up the hangover helper and you're like, oh my goodness, this is like seven inches tall. And you start, try to take a bite and, you know, the egg slips out the back and the, the you know, sausage slips out over here. And there's like yolk and syrup dripping down your sleeves. And you're like, this is big and messy and complicated. And I don't know how to handle this. Talking about a social justice issue is a lot like that. It is simple to say, you know, what? we should have policies that reduce poverty in our world. 
But then you start talking about what are the sources of poverty? You gotta talk about local economics and global markets and uh, nonprofit organizations and government policies and family patterns and public health and education and ecological factors and racism and technological change. And all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, this is, this is bigger, messier, harder to get my hands around than I thought. Being humble means we don't offer simple solutions to complex problems. Or to put it another way, if you can sum up your approach to a justice issue in a meme or a tweet, you're doing it wrong. Related thought. Humility distinguishes between values and strategies. I've mentioned before that I love to play strategy games. And in a strategy game, most of the time, every person has the same goal. Everybody's trying to do the same thing, you know, get 10 points, build the biggest city, you know, make the most money, whatever it is. But what's interesting about a strategy game and makes it a strategy game is there are always multiple ways to get to that goal. Everybody can adopt a different strategy. I'm going to build roads. I'm going to farm this. I'm going to do that. And, And you can pick your path to try to get to that goal. And there are multiple good strategies to getting to it. Now, you don't know which one is ultimately going to win the day, but there are lots of ways to try to approach a problem that all are good ideas. When we are talking about social issues, Christ followers need to know how to distinguish between our values and goals, which ought to be pretty similar because we're reading the Bible and picking up the heart of God, and the strategies we are using to pursue those goals. So we should all value reducing poverty in our world. But we can disagree about whether or not that's best done through government policies or private charities or free market forces or some combination of these things. We should all value the lives and the well-being of immigrants and refugees. But we can disagree about how open our borders should be and what the policies should look like. We should all value and have the goal of protecting the environment. But we can disagree about what regulations are going to be effective in that. There are many Christians who have confused their biblical values with their political and social strategies. And they have baptized their strategies so that they assume that all Christians should be champions of the free market or of a progressive tax rate or immigration reform or school choice vouchers or whatever their strategy of of choice is. But these strategies, these are strategies and we don't have to agree on them. What this means practically is that within this church, when it comes to the strategic level of things, you will find people all across the political spectrum And that's good, because the kingdom of God doesn't fit neatly into any political party. Even on our pastoral staff, there are some of us who lean right, and some of us who lean left, and a lot of us who are just sort of dizzy, okay? (laughs) We need to be humble enough to respect fellow believers with the same values and goals, but different strategies that they think are going to work. Another thought about humility. Humility respects different callings. One One of my favorite things to see happen in a person's life is to see them get passionate about a biblical justice issue. I love it when a person's heart gets close to the blazing heart of God and their heart ignites with just a little bit of his passion. And and there's something that I've seen, though, that goes along with that. When someone gets passionate about an issue, they want everybody else to get passionate about it too, and that's a good thing. But they assume that everybody should get passionate about it in the same way as them. And without trying to, they can start to judge people who aren't as invested in their cause as they are. So I I know lots of families who do foster care or safe families. I also know people who go and spend time each week with our friends at Markland who have developmental disabilities. I know people who provide uh, legal service for people who can't afford it through administered justice. I know people who teach ESL to refugees and people who visit young adults who are in prison. And every one of these people is passionate about their cause and they want other people to be passionate as well. But guess what? 
You cannot have one person who can teach ESL and visit Markland and the prison and do foster care and provide legal services and all do it in a sane life. It's just not possible. God has called us to care about each of those groups of people. Every one of us needs to do that. But in, but he, in the same way that he calls us to different lines of work and vocation, he calls us to different approaches to how we address justice in our world. Even within people who are passionate about the same issue, they can approach it in different ways. I know lots of people who are passionate about pro-life issues. And some of them, they'll address that by uh, serving at a crisis pregnancy center. Some will do it by demonstrating outside of a Planned Parenthood. Some will do it by advocating pro-life legislation. Some will do it by adopting kids. But not every person who's passionate about ending abortion can do all of those things. So we need to be humble enough to recognize that not all of us have the same calling to do the same things. Of course, if you are doing nothing about anything, then I'm gonna stick one of those people on you and make sure that they rope you in for something, okay? Final thought on humility. Humility communicates with kindness. How you say something matters as much or more as what you say. I know that the prophets use really strong language, but do not use that as an excuse. Being right does not justify being a jerk. If you are passionately defending the dignity of a victim of injustice, make sure you are doing it while respecting the dignity of the person you are talking to. And that includes even people who hold positions you think are morally repugnant. Martin Luther King Jr., he was known for his nonviolent, peaceful approach to change. But what was amazing, what was most radical about his commitment, that it was not just a commitment to outer nonviolence, but also to inner nonviolence. He said, we don't just refuse to shoot our opponents, we also refuse to hate them. He learned that from Jesus, and it was the reason he was humble. One more question to answer from this passage. Why should we care? Why should we care? There is an American myth that says that anybody can succeed if they want to, if they try hard enough, if they work at it. If the people who end up on the top are there because they earned it, and if you didn't end up there, well, it's because you missed the opportunity. You didn't, you didn't uh, apply yourself in the way you should have. We, we wanna think of the world kind of like a classroom where everybody's given the same test, everybody's judged with the same standard. And so, it, you know, there's gonna be some differences and, you know, basic giftedness. But if you work hard, you apply yourself, you can get a good grade in the class. Everybody can. But the real world is more like a classroom where every kid is handed something different when they walk in. Some kids are given textbooks and other kids aren't. And, and a few of the kids that get a textbook, they actually get like five textbooks even though they only need one. And some of the kids without textbooks, they, they don't even get a desk. They got to sit on the floor. And some of these kids with books, they actually get a computer as well. And it's very uneven what people walk in the door with. It's obvious when you look at that situation. It doesn't matter how smart the kids are or how hard they work. There are some kids who are more likely to succeed than others. When I was growing up, I never questioned the fact that if I wanted to, I could go to college. My family, in terms of our community, was on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. And we didn't have a lot of extra money, but I still knew that if I wanted to, you know, there would be a way for me to go and get an education. And I never questioned that. I could probably study whatever I decided I wanted to study. And I'm guessing that most other kids in my community, they never questioned that either. They, they, they knew if they wanted to, they could go to college. But I have a friend from Rwanda. I actually met him when I was in grad school. And, and he was intelligent, worked hard, and ended up getting an education. But if you went and asked the kids he grew up with, were you certain your entire life that if you wanted to, you could go to college? My guess is their answer would be different than mine. Why is that? Is it because they worked harder? Because uh, I worked harder? Is it because I earned something they didn't? No, it's because they lived in Rwanda and I lived in Glen Ellen. 
The, the world isn't just. And for those of us who have grown up in the Glenelans of the world, once we realize that, it's really common to start to feel guilty and defensive and to push back and say, look, it's not my fault that I was born here. Like, I, don't blame me. I don't, don't give me a guilt trip because I didn't choose to oppress anybody. I'm just here. We don't need to react with that guilt and defensiveness. Instead, we should respond with gratitude and generosity. We, we should say, everything I have, my money, my education, my job, my health, my home, all of it, it is a gift I did not earn. I did not earn my privilege, and so I'm not going to act as if I had and hold on to it like it was mine. Starting in verse four, God lists some of the things that he has done for Israel. All of them are from the early chapters of their, their life as a nation. He starts off by talking about the Exodus. He says, I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. In verse five, he describes how on the journey out of Egypt, he defended them from bigger, more powerful nations that wanted to destroy them. He said, my people remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered. And then he describes how he led them from the desert to the promised land. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Gilgal is the place where they crossed into the land that would become their home, the land that would provide their food, that would be their place of safety and prosperity. This is why Israel is supposed to care about injustice. Because when they were immigrants being exploited in a foreign land, God liberated them. When they were an orphan nation, he defended them like a father. When they were poor and homeless, he provided them with a rich and plentiful land. When they were victims of injustice, God stood in solidarity with them. And if he did that for them, how can they not do that for others? We're about to celebrate communion, which is a, a picture of how God rescued us on the cross. And when you realize what Jesus has done for you, it changes everything. Jesus, who was rich and powerful, became poor and took on weakness to rescue us. Jesus loved us with a loyal love, with hesed, that made him say, your problem is my problem. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross to rescue us. And what makes this even more amazing than what God did to Israel is that the Israelites, when they were in Egypt, they were innocent victims. But you and I, we were guilty. Our slavery to sin was a captivity of our own making. We did not deserve to be rescued, but he still did it. In all of this, this is what knocks down those barriers we have on the inside when we get defensive and we want to write other people off. We, we can no longer ask the question, is this person worthy to receive my help? We, we don't ask, have they done enough to get themselves out of their situation? Have they been responsible? Is this their own fault? Did they make bad choices? Is that why they're in this situation? We don't ask those questions because if Jesus had asked those questions, he never would have rescued us. The reason we stand in humble solidarity with other people is because God stood in humble solidarity with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is breathtaking to think about how you stood with us when we were in need. God, what we want is to pick up some of your heart for the world around us, that we would see all that we have as a gift and we would join with you in your mission to renew and restore a broken world. God, shift our hearts so that we would do justice, 
and love mercy and walk humbly with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.